It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, am I living under a generational curse? This is part two of our multiple episodes curse series. Coming up in this episode, curses can be scary. Is our understanding of curses today modeled after God's example of cursing? Or is it modeled after Satan's example? In the Bible, God did curse generations of people. Why would he do such a thing? How could that be fair? And finally, did God ever give permission for us to righteously curse others? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host, for over 20 years. It's a privilege. And Julie is also with us. Hi, gentlemen. Jonathan, what is our theme text for today's episode? Deuteronomy 30, 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Our God is a God of order. Psalm 89.14 says that righteousness and justice are the very foundation of his heavenly throne. This means that all he does must be based in what is right and just. Now, while some of us may look at this through fearful eyes, this is actually great news because it means God is and always will be dependable and trustworthy. If this is the case, why did God seem so over-the-top angry in the Old Testament? Why did he seemingly curse not only wrongdoers, but the generations that followed them as well? Did these curses of God work the same way the curses of our day are said to work? Were they a wishing of evil upon someone or something? Did God give anyone the authority to curse others? This is part two of our series on curses, uh, am I living under a generational curse? Julie, can you just give us a brief recap of where we were, uh, part one? Sure. We explored how there are various psychological and physiological explanations for why some people have a greater tendency than others to believe curses are affecting them. And science is discovering that we inherit more from our parents and grandparents than ever thought possible. So anxiety from curses is real, but we can't let that keep us from finding the faith and courage to overcome. We can't forget who we are in Christ. So, and in, I'm sorry, Rick. Go ahead. Well, in part one, we discussed two important terms. These terms appeared in the definitions of the several biblical words translated curse. The first word is execrate, which means to feel or express great loathing for. The second term is imprecate, which means a spoken curse. And these are words we never use in our normal vocabulary, but they're used to define things. So we're going to go back to them again and again and remind you of what the definitions are, because this will help us understand the Old Testament and what curses really mean. Because here's a hint, they don't mean what you think they mean in the Old Testament. The first scripture we discussed last week was Genesis 3, 14 and 16 and 17, where God cursed, execrated, or expressed a great loathing for Satan. God also cursed, same word, the ground for Adam's sake. So now let's put those, quote, curses, those loathings, because that's the definition, into a fuller context. Before there was any loathing, you know what there was? There was blessing. 
Let's look at Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, Rick and Julie, I think what God was saying is, here's my gift to you. I love you. Can you imagine all those blessings? Uh, to me, that's, that's phenomenal. Now, the word for blessed in this verse is a verb, and it means to kneel by implication to bless God as an act of adoration, and vice versa, man as a benefit. Also, by euphemism, to curse God or the king as treason. So there's an interesting dichotomy to that word that we're going to get to in a few minutes, but God blessed them. God adored them. That's really what we're seeing here in Genesis 1, 27, 28. Now, when, God, when, when, when man sinned, God did not remove the blessing, this direct expression of his love, but from Adam and Eve, but he did make its value much harder to find. We see pain in childbirth, inequality, and cursing, that is, execrating or having a great lo- loathing for the ground, were all done to man and woman within the context of God's expressed love for them. In other words, he did it because he loved them. So the blessing's still there, but his protection was removed, and that made life so much harder. So there's still blessings, but now it's going to be in the context of this imperfect, sinful world. And let's remember that phrase, his protection was removed, because this helps us understand curses and God in a very different light. So Jonathan, let's, let's clarify biblical curses. Let's get started with that. What do we have? When God cursed the ground, it was a disciplinary action put in place as a consequence for sinful actions. It would inevitably prove to be an act of eternal love. God cursing the ground would prove to be an act of eternal love. What does that tell you about God and, quote, cursing? There's something that is powerful to it because it's a just consequence. Let's go a little further now. Let's move further in Scripture. The word for blessed that we talked about, this adoration, is generally used as an expression of adoration, but it's also occasionally translated curse as an expression of treason. And you think, well, wait, how can that same word go both ways? Well, there are only a few examples in Scripture of this. We're going to look at one. We're going to drop in into the book of Job, where Satan is challenging God over Job's loyalty to God, and basically saying, yeah, he's only loyal to you because you're nice to him. Jonathan, let's go to Job chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. So God is basic, or Satan is basically saying, he loves you because you give him everything. Everybody would love you if you gave him everything. So, so Satan is being a little sarcastic here, but he's, and he's after something. He's saying you blessed, same word as God you know, blessing Adam and Eve, you blessed them. So here's what Satan proposes, verse 11. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Now, when it says he will surely curse you, the word for curse is the exact same word as the word for bless. So this is where the treasonous part of the definition that Jonathan gave us earlier comes into play. Satan is basically saying, take stuff away and he will be treasonous to you. And Jonathan, you read 
Um, have you not made a hedge about him? I like that. That's a hedge or a fence of protection. And this might give us a glimpse as to how it works. So it's not that we should interpret that God is cursing us when things go wrong in our life, but he might lift up that hedge or fence and allow things to affect us either from natural consequences or for something that we specifically need to learn or have an experience for our highest spiritual welfare. So Satan is looking to get Job to curse, to be treasonous to God. In chapter two of Job, Satan comes before God again, and he presses the issue beyond Job's possessions. Here's what what he says uh, in in Job chapter 2, verses 5 through 6, Satan talking to God about Job. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power. Only spare his life. So again, he will curse you to your face. He will be treasonous. It's the same word as blessing. It's the dark side of it. Satan challenged God and attempted to have Job follow him in his own treasonous ways. Satan was trying to create Job in his image. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so cursing God to his face would have been this treasonous act of rebellion. Satan wanted Job to dishonor God by having Job let go of his allegiance to God and be treasonous, just like Satan is. And eventually he did get to Job's wife because even she encouraged him at one point to curse God and die. And again, that same word, be treasonous to God. So this is deep. This is big. Jonathan, let's clarify biblical curses based on what we just heard about with Satan in the the account of Job. Treason is a biblical curse that obviously does not come from God, but from Satan, the father of all treasonous thoughts and actions. So this is something to to realize. That kind of, quote, curse, that comes from Satan, not from God. Let's move forward in Scripture from the, the creation account now. Let's go back to the creation account and move forward to the next time cursing is mentioned. After the original sin, the next biblical curse God issues is closely related to his human family, to his first human-focused curse, rather, his first human loathing of the ground. Remember, he cursed or loathed the ground for the sake of Adam. Cain has just murdered Abel. Let's drop in Genesis 4, 9-14. Then the Lord God said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And the word Uh, for cursed here is to execrate, which means feel or express great loathing for. And that's the word that really comes up more than than others in terms of the expressiveness here. So you are cursed from the ground. You are loathed from the ground. Cain is driven from the already loathed ground. Why? Because he defiled it with his brother's blood. This is a curse or I'm sorry, should ask this as a question. Is this a curse that fits today's definition of wishing evil on someone or something? No, it is a consequence of a heinous sin. It's not a wish for magical evil. It's a clear-cut, confident uh, um, uh, consequence based on justice. Let's finish the verses, Jonathan, verses 13 and 14. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. 
Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face, and I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So Cain's answer reveals that he did not question God's authority in proclaiming the consequences of his actions. He knew he did wrong. He knew there were consequences. He just was overwhelmed by them. Yeah, and, and God marked him in some way that people weren't allowed to kill him in Genesis 4.15. So he experienced punishment, but God wasn't making him hurt because God wished evil on him. So there's a difference between God's cursing and people trying to curse other people. Dramatic, dramatic difference, and that's what's showing up already as we open up this, this subject. So Jonathan, let's go to clarifying biblical curses based on this experience with the, the, the curse, quote-unquote, to Cain. Cain was cursed or loathed from the ground. God's penalty was to have Cain's disrespect for life be reflected in the very ground, disrespecting his cultivation attempts. God's curse was a just and merciful consequence for a heinous sin. And Rick, real fatherly consequence doesn't wish for evil and harm, but for the hardship of the experience to produce a fruit of goodness, integrity, righteousness, from God's perspective, hardship is in place, so it'll be a wake-up call. Amen to that. You know, we can see a marked difference between God's intentions with curses and Satan's intentions with curses. The question is, who will we follow? God's loathing brings just and serious consequences. Did God ever curse his people generationally? The idea of generational curses certainly does not have, I'm sorry, does have its foundation in the Bible. As a matter of fact, we will shortly examine God's greatest generational curse of all time within the nations of the world. Before we do, we need to clearly set the context, as that's going to help us understand what this massive curse really means. So we're focusing on generational curses at this point. All right, so after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness— the Israelites are preparing to finally cross the Jordan River, enter the promised land, and Deuteronomy chapters 27 to 30 will contain both hope and warning. So it's really good to read all these chapters for homework in order to get the full picture. But this requirement in Deuteronomy 27 was for Israel to honor and follow God. God wanted them to bless him as he blessed them. So let's pick it up in Deuteronomy 27, 11 to 13. Moses also charged the people on that day, saying, When you cross the Jordan, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these shall stand on Mount Ebal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Nephtali. The word for curse is a noun meaning vilification, which means condemnation or strong criticism. All right, so picture this. We've got these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and they're in the West Bank in Israel, about a mile from each other. So from Mount Gerizim, they shouted a list of blessings that the nation would receive if they obeyed the law. But corresponding curses or condemnations are shouted from Mount Ebal. And the people would hear this from the valley below, and the decisions they would make from this point forward, would have a dramatic effect on their lives and on the future trajectory of their nation. God was very clear. 
And he's very clear. And when he said, for the curse, those will stand on Mount Ebal. That word for curse, Jonathan, you said, means vilification, uh, you know, sort of a condemnation. This particular word for curse helps us see how it is the opposite of bless. Bless is to embrace and, and, and protect, and curse is to push away with disdain. When someone is blessed by God, they're protected and they're built up by God's active favor. When they're cursed or loathed or, or vilified by God, they're out of his active favor and they're left to the consequences of sin in a world run by Satan's treacherous rule. It's like that hedge of protection we talked about being removed and here we're left to deal with the treachery of Satan and all that brings into our lives. And this helps us understand what cursing means from God. It's not what you think. It's not what the world thinks. It's entirely different. It's based on justice. It's based on just, righteous consequences. So let's get into these verses now. Then came the warnings. So we've got the setup between the two mountains and the blessings and the cursing. So for, now we're going to start with some warnings uh, of many ungodly actions that would bring curses or loathing from God. Jonathan, let's go to Deuteronomy 27, verses 14, 15, and 17. I will be shouting from Mount Ebal. The Levite shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Rick, just like a natural father would be, God is deeply disappointed when we disobey. He is. And this, those are just a couple of the, quote, curses in a long list that God puts out here uh, that were shouted out from Mount Ebal. And you're right. It's fatherly discipline. It's not this magical nonsense that we talk about today. It's entirely different when it comes from God. These actions, like you read and, and commented on, would cause loathing from God but they were all individually based. They were about people's individual actions. And notice, th these pronouncements are there, but there's no specific penalties because the law was in place with all those penalties. You didn't need to say, and here's what's going to happen because the law already delineated those things. So now you've, you've shouted from Mount Ebal. Let's go to the other side. Next were blessings, the result of diligent obedience to God. These blessings were expressions of God's love for them. Julie, let's go. Uh, let's take the blessings. So in Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 4, I get to be shouting the blessings from Mount Gerizim. So it says, now it shall be if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. So you've got all of these wonderful blessings. And, and, and I love the way it says it in verse 2. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. It's like you're walking down the road. It's like, wait, wait, something's following us. Run. Wait, wait. No, it's God's blessing. And they just overtake you. <laughs> you're overrun by God's blessing. That's how he describes it. It's a beautiful picture when we have the right kind of obedience. These were very lofty results from the blessing of heartfelt obedience. And this isn't just blind obedience because you have to. This is observant obedience because you love God. Absolutely. Very, very so, clear. Go ahead. 
So could it be said that these people were living then under either a blessing from one mountain or the curse from the other? Those are the options. Do you think that applies to us today? Are we living under a blessing or a curse? You know, we can't use that word curse so arbitrarily. We just can't. What, we, the, what the people were living under and what we are living under is we are either living within God's favor or we're living outside of God's favor. And it's not some magical curse to be outside of God's favor. It's the natural consequences of sin, death, and Satan. So I don't want to go down that road saying we're living under a curse because you get the wrong impression. It's something, mm-hmm. it's something more just more reasonable than that, because God has an eternal plan in place. So we've got these blessings. Next were the dark results of disobedience. Back to the dark stuff, which would affect the very things previously blessed. And these blessings, you know, remember I told you, do do your homework and read these for the Deuteronomy. These blessings and curses read like bookends. There are these really big blessings, but there's these equally big and scary consequences for sins like idolatry. So, Jonathan, let's go to Deuteronomy 28, uh, 15 through 18. Back to Mount Ebal. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes, with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be you in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the offspring of your body and the produce of your ground, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock. So, so Julie, you're right. You've got these bookends, and God is basically letting the nation know, obey me from your heart and great blessing. Disobey me from your heart and great consequence, great trouble. God is giving this nation of Israel a path to walk on. If you walk towards me, you get blessing. If you walk away from me, there is consequences because you're walking away from goodness and towards sin and evil, and that's exactly what you get. Now, and it says those will overtake you. Remember those blessings? Yes, they come from behind, yes. they're like, woof. <laughs> you yeah. can have bless, uh, curses just or consequences just as overwhelming. Right. They catch up to you. When, like, what's behind us? Oh, curses really run because yeah, right, you're right. in big trouble here. Why? Because you're walking away from God. So the, quote, curses from God are just consequences. It's justice at work. It's nothing more than that. Let's stop with the, with the fantasy of making it into something big and spooky. There's nothing big and spooky here. So now this curse really becomes generational. This pronouncement of loathing leaps forward into generational results. We believe these next verses prophetically bring Israel forward to its Roman captivity way out in Jesus' day. Jonathan, let's go to Deuteronomy 28, 49 to 51. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as the eagle, and eagle is the symbol of Rome. And it'll swoop down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. Moreover, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, no wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. That is pretty serious stuff. And and the idea that this is a prophecy of disobedience is going to bring you here. And then we had Rome show up and, and actually accomplish all of those things that were mentioned here in this prophecy. So 
not only does this generational, quote, curse, these generational loathing from God because they're disobedient go there, but it goes even further. The generational issues continue as Israel is now prophesied because of disobedience to be scattered. Remember when Jesus said, your house is left to you desolate before he was crucified? He was giving a prophecy that was already given back in Deuteronomy. Let's go to Deuteronomy 28, 64 and 65. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you and your fathers have not known. Among those nations, you shall find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes and despair of soul. Boy, that is a sad, sad state of affairs. And that is what happened. That is what happened. Israel was scattered amongst all nations and only regathered in our, in our generations, in our basic day. So when you want to look at a, quote, generational curse, this is it. And, and folks, let me, let me tell you something. As, 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 we, as we tried to put this all together and, and, and go through the scriptures and, and lay them out, we looked for the hard ones, the, the really difficult things to explain. Because if we're going to talk about curses in scripture and we're going to be fair we need to go to the difficult things deuteronomy 27 28 29 and 30 are difficult chapters and what we see in israel's history is when prophets were to come on the scene you know what that meant that meant there was trouble that meant there was disobedience they came to proclaim the trouble to try to bring the people back when the people followed the correction they got blessing when they followed their own way they received consequence. Not cursings, not some magical thing, not some, some, some strange thing happening, but the natural consequences of disobeying God. Rick, our actions affect the actions of those who follow us. Generationally, that is correct. It's not a curse. It's a consequence. And that's what we need to understand. Let's jump to Deuteronomy chapter 29. We don't have time to go into it. But chapter 29 begins by reminding Israel of their miraculous deliverance up to this point and reminds them that they are God's only chosen people. God lets them know that if they are unfaithful, that would be their legacy. So think about it. Faithfulness is a legacy, and a lack of faithfulness is also a legacy. You can call it a curse if you want, but it's a consequence. Let's deal with it the way it should be. Uh, Julie, we need to go to Deuteronomy chapter 30 and, and, and wrap this piece up. What do we have? Let's go back to Mount Gerizim with, for all the blessings. This is uh, verses 15, 19, and 20. It says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing, which in this case it means benediction or prosperity, and the curse meaning to make light, trifle with, bring into contempt. So God says, choose life in order that you may live in your descendants by loving Lord, the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding close to him. And there are these similar blessing curse comparisons also found in Leviticus 26, where God outlines the penalties for disobedience, just like he does here in Deuteronomy. And the end result there in Leviticus, verse 2244, was God let Israel know that ultimately he wasn't going to forget them or cast them away. And see, that's the beauty of all of this. 
And this reminds me of when the Israelites wanted a king and not judges. Mm -hmm. And God gave them a list of consequences if they insisted along this line. But they didn't care. They accepted the consequences. Because they wanted what they wanted. That's a great example of what disobedience brings. And see, this shows that this is not treasonous. This is not turning entirely on God. God loved them and kept working with them and sending them prophets. So you can't say that God's cursing them because he keeps sending them the remedy. That's not what happens when you curse somebody in our yeah, day. He's, he's not hexing them. Right. For evil purposes. Exactly, exactly. So God's generational curses, his loathing against his disobedient chosen, were not a reactive wish for harm like the curses of today. Instead, they were a response to disobedience. While this response took them out of God's active favor, it did not consider them treasonous. God responded with generational calamity. Why? For their eternal well-being. That's we have verified in both Old and New Testament scriptures. And let's look, look, just look at one scripture to verify this. Jonathan, let's go to Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. A child isn't treacherous when they disobey. They just need correction. And that reminds me of the character named Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof. When Jonathan read, you of all I have chosen among the families of the earth, he said, I know, I know, we're your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? And, 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 <laughs> but see, you, you, you put all of this together, and, and we're seeing a picture unfold. And folks, please pay really close attention to this. This is a picture of God's grace expressed through his anger, through his righteous indignation, through the vilifying, through the loathing, because he is doing it so they see the consequences, the depth, and the hurt of sin. That's why God does those things. Those are not the curses that we see today. Jonathan, let's go to clarifying biblical curses to wrap this part up. Because Israel was blessed with God's exceptional favor above all others, God's cursing, his loathing of them, would also be exceptional. Great knowledge of and experience with God's blessings brings great responsibility and consequences when God's ways are rejected. See, it's a very simple equation. It really is. Generational curses or loathings let everyone know that going down the path of sin leads to disdain and separation from God. What do other curses, other statements of loathing from God in the Old Testament focus on? There are many examples of Old Testament loathing and consequences at the hand of God. These range from simple statements that we really don't think much about to statements of anger, statements regarding the fulfilling of the law. The common theme in all of them is the sovereignty of God as it relates to the sinfulness of humanity. So we have got a, a very specific uh, unfolding here. And what we want to focus on here is, the, is the, the sovereignty of God. We want to put this in perspective and look at curses the way we see them today and say, no, you know what? They just simply don't belong. So justice is the foundation of God's throne. Justice and righteousness, that is what he works with. And this is not a God of, of, of vengeance or of jealousy. 
This is a God of profound wisdom and profound foresight. So we're going to go next to the scriptures that many, many individuals go to uh, to, to prove that there are generational curses today. Okay, This is something that the, the, the world looks at, and actually many Christians look at and say, wow, okay, this proves there are generational curses. Well, let's go here. Um, Jonathan, let's go to Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And uh, of those who hate me, you know, if you disobey my law in relation to idolatry, then evil and punishment will follow. You know, there's no halfway with an idol. They couldn't say, I love both God and the princess, uh, the goddess princess, the Diana, <laughs> the goddess Diana. And for that matter, we can't say, I love God and I love insert thing here, you know, money, self, power, it's only God. And so that is a very specific part of the commandments, and that's what we want to understand. This is a specific part of the commandments. So let's talk about this third and fourth generation thing. This third and fourth generation iniquity is only mentioned on three occasions, only. First, at the giving of the Ten Commandments, here in Exodus 20, verse 5, Jonathan just read that, and is repeated in Deuteronomy 5, chapter 5, verse 9. That's the same exact event in, in the different book. The second mention of this third and fourth generation, God repeated this generational iniquity to Moses, and that was in Exodus 34, 7, when Moses went back up the mountain to replace the broken tablets of the law. Remember the golden calf? Moses breaks the tablets. He needs to replace them. God repeats this iniquity part to the third and fourth generation. The third time it's mentioned in Scripture, Moses repeated it as he pleaded with God as Israel faithlessly rejected entering the land of Canaan. Remember the 12 spies, the 10 and the 2? Well, that's it. This is not a curse. It is simply a consequence for disobedience. You disobey me, and I will let that disloyalty fester and grow for generations. So it's basically the same context of the law of Israel repeated three times, not three separate instances throughout the Bible. And whenever Israel stopped being idolatrous, that hedge of protection we've been talking about was put back, and again, they were blessed, right? Right. So we're, we can't look at this logically and scripturally. You can't look at this as this curse. So folks, please, let's not take the scriptures out of context context to prove some point because we feel like it should be. Yeah, so we can't apply this to generational sins for the Christian or even the rest of the world at this time. That punishment on the third and fourth generation was a specific time for specific people and a specific purpose. Unlike the law, when sin passed on to the third and fourth generations, Jesus said, bring your sins in my name to the Father, and they are forgiven. We as Christians should live a repentant life. We don't have to look back in fear. And I just want to let you both know that the internet is littered with checklists to diagnose whether you're under a curse or not. And you check yes if you've had continuing financial problems or mental illness or injuries or your children have bad sleeping habits. Any possible thing wrong in your life is now being attributed to some curse 
from God. And so do curses continue down through the generations unless they're reversed or broken? Are we spiritually connected with our ancestors? Are we blaming life's problems on curses from God or other people? And the answer to all three of these should be no. It should be a resounding no, because we're examining how it works in Scripture. If you want the answer, go to Scripture and leave the paganism someplace else. Interestingly, as we move forward from this generational curse, Abraham's the great, the great promise to Abraham had a curse in it as well. We always talk about, Jonathan, I think this is probably one of our most quoted scriptures ever, right? I love this, yes. And let's read Genesis 12, 3, and this time we're going to focus on the curse part. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So the same equation, I will bless them and curse Bless and curse. Curse is not woo voodoo stuff. Curse is not ooh magical. Curse is consequence. There is great uh, loathing for disloyalty. That's what it is. God is assuring Abraham that his favor upon he and his posterity includes seeing Abraham with different eyes than he. God will see those who would stand against Abraham. This is the same blessing and loathing relationship that was established when original sin was dealt with. So, folks, this, 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 this comparison, blessing and loathing, follows through the scriptures very emphatically. And when bad things happen to us, it's not God cursing us. It's the consequence of sin. Please, let's just get that and put it where it belongs. All right. This next part comes with a warning to all the women who are listening. Ladies, stay with me. We're going to get through this together. <laughs> this next example from the Old Testament is cringeworthy on all levels viewed in today's light, but I have to appreciate that Rick and Jonathan aren't afraid to lay it out and examine it. And I promise there's going to be lessons to learn. This is about the Jewish law regarding marital fidelity and a jealous husband suspecting his wife of adultery. Okay, I told you we picked the hardest things. And in our present day, what we're going to talk about from the book, uh, chapter, chapter 5 of Numbers, what we're going to talk about may come across as completely sexist and mystical. But remember, the Old Testament was a male-driven society, and Israel's law was set down by God as a strict guideline for what? For fidelity in life on every level. That being said, Jonathan, let's go to Numbers chapter 5. We're going to go through several verses. We're going to need to skip some in the interest of time. Numbers 5, chapter 5, verses 12, 14, and 15 to start with. Speak to the sons of Israel. If any man's wife is unfaithful to him, if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has defiled herself, or if a spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife when she has not defiled herself, the man shall then bring his wife to the priest and shall bring a grain offering of jealousy. So this is, has to do with the spirit of jealousy. If a man thinks his wife committed infidelity if she, and, and she had an affair and he, he can't prove it, that, that creates this jealousy. If he thinks she, she did it and she didn't do it, he can still have the same jealousy. So he goes before the priest to figure this out. So this is a very, very difficult thing to bring before the priest in the Jewish law. 
right, so let me just make a few points here. And no, before all the women in the audience ask this question, there's no provision in the law to test if the husband is cheating on his wife. That's true. Just, let's just accept that. If guilty of adultery, both parties could be put to death. And that's how serious a crime this was. Marriage involved sacred vows. And that death penalty would require a third party witness. So this describes the procedure where there is no witness and the husband thinks the wife has cheated. This provides a way the woman can prove her innocence beyond a shadow of a doubt and move on with her life. So it's actually here for her protection. It's pretty difficult, as we will see, but it is it has a protective influence here. Fidelity, like you said, Julie, was paramount, and this was the way to test it. Now, you're not going to be this. You're going to listen to this and say what? But this is the way it was back then. Jonathan, Numbers five, verses sixteen through nineteen. Then the priest shall have her stand before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthenware vessel. And he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. The priest shall place the grain offering of jealousy in her hand and in the hand of the priest is to be the water of bitterness that brings a curse. The priest shall take her, uh, have her take an oath and shall say to the woman, if no man has laid with you and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. Now, this makes more sense when we understand the sacredness of the tabernacle. The tabernacle, remember, it was a movable tent where the Israelites could be in contact with God's presence as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And we highly recommend episode 1099. Just type in those numbers in the app or christianquestions.com. Should Christians care about the Jewish tabernacle? So let me, let me add a few more points here, again, for the women in our audience. Uh, this benefits the woman because, again, if she's guilty, she should have confessed and faced the consequence. But if she's not guilty and unjustly accused, she is putting herself in the hands of God, not imperfect man who could wrongly sentence her to death. This isn't mysticism or magic spells and potions. This is dust and water from the tabernacle wherein God Almighty dwelled. This is the age where he miraculously communicated with his people. And we don't have any record of this actually happening. This lays out the procedure should it have been necessary. And, and you're, you're so right. This is putting the woman before God Almighty. And let's not forget that. Uh, God was very physically present in the decision-making of Israel at that time. Remember, under the law, a man could divorce his wife for matters of uncleanness, which is kind of hard to define, actually, in the Old Testament. This test that we're talking about here in Numbers 5 would be for a man who really believed there was infidelity, and likely it would not have been a tool of humiliation, because that's what people today would do. They would do it to humiliate. That's not the way hum humanity was better then. There was a higher moral standard amongst Israel then than there is now. So this was not to humiliate. It was to truly find out. Again, this is very difficult, but that's what it was there for. Jonathan Numbers 5, 20 to 22. If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, then the priest shall have the woman swear with the oath of a curse. And the priest shall say to the woman, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people by the Lord's making. Your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell. 
And this water that brings a curse shall go into your stomach and make your abdomen swell and your thigh waste away. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. Okay, lot there. First of all, the, the important thing is, Julie, you said this is not mystical, this is not magic. It says, by the Lord's making, he will cause a physical response to this. this. The water doesn't do it. It's God Almighty, because that's how he worked in those days. He caused physical things to happen. The other thing to remember, I want to restate it. This woman is standing before God, not some man. The priest says, when he says, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, they'll say, whoa, what does it mean? The priest is saying, you, if guilty, are an evil result of sin. And this will serve as a promise that evil will be dealt with in this nation. Because this nation is God's chosen people, and infidelity is not part of God's law. So it was a very plain, straightforward approach. And when, uh, Jonathan, you read your thigh waste away and your abdomen swell, that word thigh used here is likely a euphemism having to do with a woman's reproductive system. So it's, this is a hardcore result if you were guilty. Yes, yes. And here's the thing, though. The thing we need to realize is there's complete disclosure for this ritual. I mean, everything is stated ahead of time. The woman is standing before God, and she understood the gravity of guilt before the test was to be done. And this should have been a deterrent, right? So if we had yeah. a test like this, maybe we'd think twice about committing this kind of sin. It's a harsh consequence, It is, but it's in God's hands. This isn't witchcraft. This allowed the woman to definitively prove her innocence, and now the husband's got to get over his unfounded jealousy. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Let's continue Numbers 5, 23 to 24. The priest shall then write these curses on a scroll, and he shall wash them off into the water of bitterness. Then he shall make the woman drink the water of bitterness. So there's more time that goes by before she actually has to drink this water. She's watching this unfold. She's watching him write it down and gives you time to think. And if you are guilty, it gives you time to confess. And if you're not guilty, it gives you time to say, God is here to deliver me. And that's the exact truth of the matter because that's the way it was stated. This was done in a holy way. Jonathan, let's go to verses 27 and 28 of Numbers 5. If she has defiled herself and has been unfaithful to her husband, the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. So you see, as Julie, you've been saying all along, there is this complete release for innocence, a completely re- release. And the, the idea that she's be free and she will conceive children that was one of the highest blessings you could afford to a woman in those days, was to be able to have children. So it's saying she will be free and be blessed. Under the Jewish law, adulterers were to die. You mentioned that. How then is she an imprecation, a spoken loathing among her people? Well, her actions of infidelity would become a stain upon the nation in the same way idolatry was a stain upon the nation. When they were idolatrous, that stained their fidelity as a nation. Why do this kind of test? It gives public testimony to the importance of fidelity to God's chosen people. And earlier you mentioned uh, the sovereignty of God. How does this show that theme? Because the sovereignty of God is the centerpiece of the Jewish nation. I am the Lord your God. I delivered you out of, out of slavery. You are following my law. It is God's way or the highway, literally, 
and justly. So this reflects the sovereignty of God because it's about fidelity. Fidelity to God, fidelity to life, fidelity to family, fidelity to spouse, fidelity on all levels. Fidelity brings blessing. Infidelity brings loathing, brings disgust from God. That's how the sovereignty of God is reflected here. So Jonathan, let's wrap this up, clarifying biblical curses. God's intention behind his cursing or loathing any of humanity has never been and never will be to want them harmed. On the contrary, his loathing of sin and disloyalty and his pronouncing of consequences is entirely centered on the highest eternal end result for all people. And that's the point of God. It's always about the highest eternal end result for all people. There's nothing, nothing magical about that. God's actions are consistent. His loathing is for every expression of sin and disloyalty, and it always serves a purpose. Can we curse like God does? Do we have permission or authority to have a loathing for others? This is a really big question. One would logically think that if God wanted us to have authority to, quote, curse or to loathe others, we would see many examples of it in Scripture. So far, the only being in Scripture who was setting up someone to curse was Satan, who sought to have Job curse God. <laughs> this, this is not a good example to be following. Oh, Rick, I understand that to prepare for this topic, you printed every scripture with the word curse in it in really small font, and it was 17 pages long. Yeah, actually, I didn't print every single one. I printed the relevant ones, but it was still 17 pages long. That's right. So at least in the Old Testament, because that's all we've looked at so far, and next week we're going to do the New Testament. Are there any examples? Did you find any example where individuals successfully cursed someone else, meaning they said some magic word that intended evil accomplished by some spiritual power. Is there anything like that? Not even close. I what about go ahead. What, what about even with witchcraft? If you, you know, if there's any of the witchcraft, nothing, nothing, nothing even to do with witchcraft. Nothing, nothing. I, now look, maybe I missed one, but I, I looked and I looked because you want to find what the scriptures are teaching us, and you can't be afraid of any scripture that says anything. That's why we chose the hard examples, because we want to face this and say, this is what it means from a godly perspective. It's not what you think it means. Okay, so if the thought of curses against us, like the hex, the voodoo, isn't scriptural, where does this idea of that we're under this curse or that we can curse others. Where does that come from? It's all paganism. Every ounce of it comes from paganism. Where does paganism come from? I'll tell you. It comes from Satan. Because it's about worshiping that which is created, not the creator. Satan was the first to do that, and he taught humanity how in the absence of God. When God was not overwhelmingly present in, 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 in other nations, Satan had free rule, and he showed them to worship that which was created, and that's where you get all of these, and I'm going to use the word, ridiculous ideas of manipulation one over another. Let, let's, look at, let's look at some scriptures that some say, well, here are, here's, here's legitimate curses in the Bible. Ezekiel is said to have cursed seven cities in Ezekiel chapter 25. So let's look at the beginning of the first quote-unquote curse. Jonathan, Ezekiel 25, 1-4. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, 
Son of man, set your face toward the sons of Ammon and prophesy against them and say to the sons of Ammon, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because you said, aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned and against the land of Israel when it was made desolate and against the house of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, behold, I am going to give you to the sons of the east for a possession. So... Ezekiel is giving a prophecy. And folks, look, since when is a prophecy of consequences for evil a curse? Come on, let's be honest, let's be real, let's look at scriptures in their appropriate context. Ezekiel is not cursing these cities. He's revealing the providence of Jehovah God because they were enemies of righteousness. That's what he's doing. That kind of prophecy is all through scripture, and it's not called a curse. Let's get it right. Let's follow Scripture. That's one example. Put that away. It doesn't fit. Let's go to another example. Let's go to King Saul. King Saul proclaims a curse. In the heat of battle, King Saul sought the hard focus of his soldiers. Rick, in this example, King Saul is a questionable source because he often did things he shouldn't have. Let's read 1 Samuel 14, 24 through 26 and 28 through 29. Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under oath, saying, Cursed or loathed be the man who eats food before evening, until I have avenged myself of mine enemies. So none of the people tasted food. All of the people of the land entered the forest, and there was honey on the ground, but no man put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. So it says, Saul, put this curse out. You touch any food and you're in big trouble. And we look at that and say, well, is this a justification for cursing? Well, like you said, Jonathan, Saul is a very questionable source. His son, Jonathan, incidentally, had been out slaying the enemy. He'd slain like 10 or 20 of them all by himself. And he comes in, he didn't hear this curse. So, and he proceeds to see this honey, and this is actually, I was told this is date honey, this is not honey, honeybee honey, on the ground, and he eats it. Because it's like, man, I am starved, and he eats it. And the scripture says, and his eyes brighten. It, it lifts him because he's being nourished. Let's read verses 28 and 29. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly put the people under oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food today. And the people were weary. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See now how my eyes have brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. So bottom line is Jonathan is saying King Saul was arbitrary. His own son, Jonathan, calls out his, quote, cursing as an inappropriate reaction. And if you need a quick refresh on this story, go to our two-minute animated CQ Kids video called Who is King Saul? Part 1. Go to ChristianQuestions.com, ChristianQuestions app, or ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube for more. So... We looked at Ezekiel. No, he didn't curse anybody. King Saul, well, he made a feeble attempt at something that was entirely inappropriate, and incidentally, it didn't include anything magical. It included the wrath of the king. That's all it was. Let's be honest about this. So that doesn't count. It doesn't count. No, it can't, because the scriptures explain themselves. Let's go to another example. This is from a pagan king named Balak. He's the king of Moab. He feared Israel because they were God's chosen people. And he sought out Balaam, who was a prophet of God. And he wanted Balaam to curse his own nation. 
Now, this is in Numbers chapter 22 uh, and into chapter 23. So I'm going to sum this up. This is a fascinating story about blessing and cursing. Numbers 22, let's start with verses 2 to 6. Now Balak saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous, and Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So he sent messengers to Balaam at Pethor to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless or adored is blessed, and he whom is cursed, loathed, is cursed. So he said, though, now, therefore, please come curse these people for me because they're too mighty. I don't see where he's asking, oh, loathe these people. I think he's asking for a good old fashioned curse. You know, poof, he wants these destroyed permanently, not just put them out of favor with God. Is that wrong? Well, I think, I think now from a pagan perspective, he may be looking for something like that. But think about what he says. This people came out of Egypt. He knew of the miraculous deliverance of Israel. So he knows that Israel has, now he's a pagan, he's got all kinds of gods, but Israel's God shows himself incredibly powerful. So he goes to a prophet of that God, as a pagan king would go to a prophet of whatever other gods there are, to beg for his favor. Oh, please do this for me. What he's doing is he's, is he's stepping into ground that's actual, actual reality. Because pagan gods, they simply don't exist. You had, he's looking for power from a man who's simply a spokesman. And so while he's looking for something, what he's asking for is for God to stop protecting them. If, if, if Balaam, if you could just get God to stop protecting them, then I have a chance. And I think that, okay. that's what he's asking for. Because He's acknowledging their success is because of this Hebrew God. Yeah, and if he just turn away from them, then, right. then maybe I don't have to worry about this. So, and we've got the same scenario with those words for blessing and cursing, the same words. This is the theme that goes through the scriptures. Let's go, Jonathan, to Numbers 22, verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and repeated Balak's words to him. Rick, is this like a bribe, fees for divination? Yeah, you might say, here comes the bribe. Uh, I mean, (laughs) honestly, sorry, I couldn't resist. It it truly is. It truly is because that's pagan thinking. You you pay off to get what you want. That's not the way God works. And that's not what what Balaam was being instructed to do. Let's go to Numbers 22, uh, verse 12, to see God's instruction here. God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Same two words. You see that that started way back in the garden, and we're seeing that that equation come through. It has nothing to do with magical thinking or wishes. It has to do with God adoring and protecting or being outside of that protection. So Balaam tells them no. He says, nope, not going to do it. But Balak, this this pagan king, he is determined. So he ups the value of the bribe, and he enhances his entourage. I mean, he's figuring he's going to impress Balaam, because that's what you do when you're pagan. You try to impress the other guy, and he, he ups the ante, he ups the money. Balaam, in his fleshly weakness, gives an answer 
That's good, but it's not complete. Numbers 22, 13. So Balaam arose in the morning and said to Balak's leaders, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. But he doesn't tell the leaders all that God said. God said, you can't go with them, but you shall not curse the people because they are blessed. Why did he leave that part out? You know, when there's money involved and you're weak, maybe you're thinking, well, you know, you never know what can open up. You just never know. You don't want to turn down a good opportunity. This is not the right thinking. This is a prophet of God. And he should have listened to the letter of the law of what God said, but he didn't. So let's go to Numbers 22, 18. Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. See, now, this is good. As a prophet of God, Balaam was bound only to speak words given to him by God. We need to take a hint from this as to its value. And when you think, well, I have the right to curse, yeah, where does God tell you that? Where did God tell Balaam he could do something against God's will. We can't. We're bound by the will of God. So he spoke correctly, but yet Balaam does end up going with Balak because he's kind of, he still, he knows what's right, but he just is not quite standing firm enough. He goes before God, okay? So he goes with Balak. He goes before God. And you know what God tells him? Surprise. God tells him, I want you to bless Israel. Numbers 23, 7 and 8. Here's how he works into that blessing. He took up his discourse and said, From Amram, Balak has brought me, Moab's king from the mountains of the east. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? What a beautiful testimony. I can't, and you notice how he he, he puts it? How shall I curse? How shall I loathe? Whom God has not loathed, how shall I denounce whom God has not denounced? I am the I speak for God. Period. There's nothing else. The interesting thing is Balaam didn't have the strength to cut it off. This happened twice more. Then it happened one more time. And in the fourth proclamation, Balaam prophesies, because God tells him to, he prophesies of Moab's downfall. Balaam, even in his weakness, teaches us to never speak outside of God's will. So when we're thinking about, hey, maybe I can curse somebody. No, you can't. Why am I adamant about that? Because the scriptures don't give you permission. It's really simple. Let's grow up and follow what the scriptures teach. Jonathan, let's clarify biblical curses. God does not give us permission or authority to curse others. Further, when God himself issues a curse, it is a proclamation of the godlessness of a matter. In the Old Testament, these proclamations sometimes had just consequences attached to them and are always designed to be for the ultimate benefit of everyone. And that's the point. God, when he loathed sin and loathed actions and put consequences in place, it's for the ultimate benefit of everyone. And folks, that has nothing to do with the way curses work today. Julie, as we wrap this up, Next week is part three. What's going on with next week? Well, next week we're going to continue with some questions because we still have some on the table. What role did curses play now in the New Testament? And how are curses defined in the New Testament in relation to what we've gone over today, the Old Testament, and what we consider curses today? Are there real curses? 
today and what's the source of their power and does God curse people in this day and age and are we walking under a blessing or a curse? So a lot more coming up in part three, folks. This is an unfolding uh, scenario because this is an enormous, enormous subject that we need to really be clear on. So let's ask the question one last time. Am I living under a generational curse? No, you're not. Not even close. We are all living under the severe penalty of sin and death. But there is zero scriptural evidence that certain families in our day have certain curses from God. Any other source that you may believe has cast a curse upon your family simply cannot stand when confronted with the name of Jesus Christ on your side. And that will bring us to part three. Folks, it's about following scripture. It's about fidelity to God's truth. This is a big subject with a lot of worry and a lot of anxiety and even a lot of depression. But if we just determine what the Word of God actually says and follow it, we can be released from those things because God is above such things as cursing. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions in this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. As we said, coming up next week, can Christians be cursed and curse others? Curses Series Part 3. Talk to you then.